0: Hear that? It's not just an egg-breaking, it's the world's best omelet. Maybe it's your grandma's favorite recipe, a dinner party showstopper, or perhaps it's just a snack when you're really, really hungry. It could be the meal that keeps a girl in school, or the food that fuels a nation. And when it's farmed properly, that little egg could be the whole world's future. It's simple. Good food is everything. Join the conversation. Search UN Good Food for All
1: it's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on farm to table talk with your host roger wasson well, i grew up on a corn belt farm and ended up in northern california and my guest kind of went the opposite way from Northern California to a Corn Belt farm. Uh, Beth Hoffman, I'm, I'm anxious to compare notes with you because we kind of did go different directions. We should have crossed in the middle or something because uh, I, I did start out on a farm and I have ended up finding myself in Northern California. And and again, you did the opposite. You've even written a book about it, a very good book. In fact, it's one that uh, called "Bet the Farm. And uh, I read it and I liked it a lot. And I really want to recommend that people buy the book uh, that they don't just settle for the fact that we're going to have a podcast and a clubhouse conversation that they be sure and get a book too. But hey, Beth, welcome to Farm to Table Talk.
0: Thank you. I'm excited to talk to you.
1: Well, Beth, let's start at the very beginning at uh, well maybe not the very beginning. I don't care if we get into to, to pre-K or you know or that, yeah. that sort of thing necessarily, but there was let's let's start then the fact that you were in Northern California, you were in San Francisco and you you ended up in, um, in Iowa and, and you and your husband went back to the farm, fill, fill that in a little bit. Uh, yeah. What were you doing well, in San Francisco? Uh,
0: Yeah, I mean, it might be interesting to note um, for your listeners, too. I I grew up outside of New York City, so, uh, you know, all of my life has been around cities, um, different places in the country. But yes, I ended up in San Francisco and or Berkeley, and I met my husband there. He was a neighbor. And probably within the first five minutes of meeting him, he was telling me about how he had just been back visiting the farm in Iowa And how he loved it and how that was his dream was to move back to the farm in Iowa. And um, at the time, I didn't really think much of it. We were just neighbors and whatever. Iowa, I couldn't have told you, you know, really probably where it was on the map exactly. Um, But as we dated and married, um, we started spending summers at the farm and uh, started, you know, swimming in the ponds and fixing fence and chasing down cows and all the fun stuff that you do on an on a Iowa farm. Um, and I started having my own relationship with the land. And in addition to that, I had already been uh, reporting on food and agriculture for probably 20-ish years by that time. And I had specialized in looking at sustainable agriculture, but also um, questions of agriculture and development and um, cultural issues, you know, around food. So I I kind of saw the moving back uh, to take over the farm as a way to test out everything I had learned. Um, It was, you know, I never had lived in a rural community. I had never lived in the Midwest. So all of that was a little bit scary, but um, I'm I'm sort of someone who has lived in lots of different places. So why not the Midwest and why not rural America? Yeah, yeah. Well, and
1: and, you know, when you were writing about food and agriculture before you were really living food and agriculture there, you were in an area that has no lack of opinions about what good food systems should look like. I mean, yes. if you're going to pick anywhere, maybe New York might come in very high too. But certainly the San Francisco area, um, people talk about it, the, the farmers markets, they have the ideals. You can get into conversations about what, how the food system should change. And and I suppose in hindsight, you were surrounded with people that had never been on an actual farm like the kind you were headed for back in Iowa.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: I, I'm sure that wasn't lost on you in that whole problem. Uh, the, that process maybe they should make everybody go back and live on a farm before they write anything.
0: <laughs> yeah it was it's very true and I think it's part of what um, really propelled me to write the book was there were so many misconceptions that I encountered like even just the very basic like I remember coming here initially, And being actually surprised that there were lots of birds flying around and that the frogs didn't all have five legs or something like I I had read so much about how awful chemical agriculture was. And, you know, that I, I just couldn't picture it being in this place that was very vibrant and quite healthy in a lot of ways. Um, not healthy in other ways, but the farm was a conventional soy and corn, uh, corn and soybean uh, farm, and, and still there were birds flying around. And that just, I remember feeling quite stunned about that. So yes, there were tons of misconceptions that I had, things that I thought I knew um, from reading them a thousand times in the media, but never really stopped to investigate if that was true.
1: So it was sort of it's not as bad as you thought it was it was going to be uh, you know better and maybe ideal in some ways.
0: Um, well, I mean yes, it ha- there's no, no doubt and the, the book talks a lot about problems with conventional agriculture but there has been such a focus on the, economic- the on the environmental side. That I really felt like people had ignored the economics of it, um, of, of all kinds of farming and so yes that's where I also went with the book it's very much about the economics of agriculture.
1: So Let's paint a picture of this farm that you and your husband are, are on now and that you've written about in the in the book. So but place it uh, physically, where it is in the, in the state of Iowa, and maybe uh, describe what the land looks like, uh, you yeah. know hills, flat, trees, whatever.
0: Yes. So yeah, this is other misconceptions about Iowa, maybe. Um, so I we live now um, an hour south of Des Moines, um, a little bit to the east. And um, so near Des Moines, kind of in the center of the state of Iowa. So if you think about it as a big rectangle, we're kind of um, south, central, southeast. Um, the area is very rolling hills. It's not a flat area really at all um, in this section of Iowa um, where there's a lot of trees, a lot of forestry still because um, it's just not really geared for row cropping, even though people do it. Uh, it's It sh- probably shouldn't be done here very much. It's kind of, um, we, we also have many, many ponds on the, on the property um all all of which have been put in they're human-made ponds but um, it means that we have a natural water sources all the time there's no irrigation that takes place anywhere in the area even if people are row cropping so it's just a rain fed very green very lush area
1: and and around you then uh do you have people that are doing row cropping i guess um corn, soybeans mixed in. And I mean, like you were suggesting maybe on some hills that being better off if they weren't trying to, um, to row crop on them.
0: Yes. And so, yes, I'm looking at the window at soybeans of my neighbors. Um, so there's soybeans, corn, you know, you know, those two are the only really row crop things in this area. And then there are, there is quite a lot of cattle. So, because it is a very good area to pasture.
1: Well, I'm going to draw on the fact that you came out there from Berkeley, and uh, someday you actually are looking out your window at Roundup Ready soybeans, no doubt.
0: Yes. That caused
1: um, you any pause? That.
0: Uh, 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 yeah, actually, the our our cat had um, when we first moved into our house, which is a little it's two miles up the road from the main farm. Um, when we moved in, our cat mysteriously died. We got very ill it was only like a year old cat and I thought oh over that past weekend when he was missing they sprayed right next to our house and um he was probably sitting in the midst of it and licked it all off the glyphosate and um he had an overdose of it we're sure of that um so what's ended up happening is is that we then purchased the land next to us because just being in the middle of everyone spraying sitting in our little house it just it didn't it didn't feel it felt like it was worth every dime that we were gonna have to lay out to ensure that didn't happen but you know people are spraying to the south of us um, you know every year. Uh, There seems to be a small bit of consciousness about it. The guy showed up to spray this year and it was very windy. And my husband ran over and said, you know, you're spraying and it's going to go directly into our house. I don't know what he was spraying, if it was dicamba or glyphosate or whatever. Um, And so the guy was kind of pissed off about it and the neighbor who hired the guy, we called him immediately. And he said, I told that guy not to be spraying today. And, you know, so um, it was in part because it was going to hit our house, but also because it just doesn't make sense to be, you know, you're just throwing out money as a farmer to spray when it's just taking off in the wind.
1: So on your farm, you've got what do you have cows? Do you have what other animals and, and do you produce? go ahead? Oh Yeah
0: we, we I interrupted have, you yeah we are grass finishing our beef um, so we have cows and we have goats uh, we just got a buck a few weeks ago and so we will have many more goats come this spring
1: and do you have any grain that you're producing too
0: We do not. We have hay ground and pasture. So we took out all of the row crop that was here that John's dad was doing and we planted it all in pasture. There is a small section that his dad still rents out for some extra income uh, that we have gotten with the one family that um, raises organic grain in the area. So they are Currently, conventionally growing, um, but we're hoping that it picks up so that we can have them doing organic grains on the farm.
1: What have you learned about the economics of farming? Um, you had some statistics, I know, in your in your book about what farm incomes are, and they, I'm sure, a lot of people be fairly surprised of how low those average incomes are. But what's yes. the, what's your read on this as a way to make a living?
0: Well, uh, the statistics you're talking about, actually, the, the updated version. So in the book, I was using 2019 statistics. The 2020 statistics are, uh, drumroll, please, you know, um, it, that the median income for the two million farms in this, in this country, so half of them, made less than a negative $1,248 that's the median net income for farms in 2020. Now it's interesting to point out that there was also um, articles about how it was, despite all of the talk about there being all these trade problems with China, it wasn't actually the biggest trade year um, of exports to China, I think ever in 2020. So it didn't actually um, equate to higher farm incomes. Um, it was positive, a positive number the year before at, uh, at $300, um, but because of huge government payments that we all received. Um, so the, the economics of it are not good. And it was part of what I was so surprised about learning, We've, we kind of have framed it in the media. Um, that, you know, there's a problem this year, this year, there's a problem with China, this year, there's some problem with the weather, there's a drought. And so therefore, farmers are having a hard time when no, the actuality of it is, is that farmers are having a hard time period. And I think it's really important for us to understand why and how the system actually works, so that we can find solutions to it. Because uh, I think a lot, and this this is again and again in Bet the Farm, I discuss about the idea of uh, myths, the myths that sort of are very prevalent in our thinking about agriculture. And a lot of the solutions are based on those mythologies, which won't equate to real lasting change.
1: You know, I know some people say that those averages that show like they've lost more than $1,000 a head includes many people that are so small that they're, you know, they already are part-time or some would say hobby farms and, and, and so forth. Uh, So it's always, it's always seems to be something that's debated when you talk about being 2 million farms, because I've seen figures before that they say, really there may only be 300,000 or something like that of, of people that are able to, to make a living Uh, what we might call a decent living enough to be able to what, um, take a vacation, send their kids to college, you know, things that people would like to be able to do for when they, when they're working.
0: Right. So here's my diatribe about that. Um, The, the term hobby farm is used many times to kind of discredit like, oh, those are, those are the small farms that somebody's farming is a hobby. It doesn't really matter if they make an income. And it's, it's actually quite an insulting term because most of the people who are in that category of a farming are farming their butts off. They're working, you know, 60, 70, 80 hour weeks in the summer. That's not, that's not a hobby and spending tons of money. What, what is really interesting is, is that a lot of people who are doing row crops, which are supposed to be the farms that are, you know, making money, the conventional ag, those people are the people who typically have off-farm jobs that are supporting the farm. So they're not just, the, you know, 90% of farms now have off-farm income that mm-hmm. supports not only the family but the farm itself, it's paying for the actual farm. So I think that the distinctions here between, you know, what type of farm is it, and that whole conversation about, oh, those are too small to make any money, they are not that helpful in us thinking about the farm system, because who where is where is the where do we draw the line and say okay this is a farm that then is a real farm that's making money is it is it a farm that grows corn and soybean that nobody can eat is that considered an actual farm that's doing great service to our society you know that we're going to like consider um is the real thing I, it just it becomes it becomes a conversation that i find is not that Helpful. Um, there are there are thresholds of income. Like the USDA shows that if you net over three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, that's when farms tend to stop needing off farm income as much. Uh, but but again, that pull, that brings in the whole question of how much is the, of that income is then subsidized payments, subsidy payments. Um, because those largest farms, we all know, are bringing in huge subsidies as well. Yeah. So if those can't kind of be self-sustaining either and not need the government dole to be surviving, then what is a profitable farm? I, I don't know.
1: Well, that's the big question, and and I think that when you talk about the other sources of funding. When we've just been going through COVID payments to farmers on the COVID payments, I think I read it was close to 30% of total farm revenue was coming from something related to uh, COVID related payments, a couple, several billion dollars to, to farms, well, Uh, I I shouldn't start throwing numbers around, but the different kinds of agriculture that was getting some of these COVID funds. And then the two other areas that you discovered when you moved there that you didn't know too much about before, you end up having the crop insurance, which is kind of a a subsidy arrangement uh, that people can so-called, quote, insure a certain row crops. Uh, But basically it works out very much like a, a subsidy. But there's another form too That's the conservation reserve program. And I think in your hilly area, if I'm not mistaken, you were pointing out that that's a much greater amount in some of those counties than just the subsidies that actually pay the farmers to leave the land idle.
0: Yeah. So that, that is again, so one of the misconceptions that I hear a lot is, is that subsidy payments or what's wrong with the system, Uh, subsidy payments, pay farmers to grow corn and soybeans. It's actually, uh, I kind of don't want to get into it because it's so complicated. I talk about it in the book at length about how those payments work, but you actually do not get paid for growing corn and and soybeans. So that, uh, and to add to that, the payments that farms that are the size of ours, ours is 530 acres. That's above average for Iowa. The average farm size is 360 acres. And the the payments that we get, um, like we get the payments, even if we're not growing corn and soybeans, we got something like $4,500. So it's not enough money to really inspire people to go and grow corn and soybeans. It's just, it's kind of helping pay you know, the, for, for all the debt people have, it's helping people kind of stay in that game. And it, it helps people to justify like not being able to get out, right? Because if you start growing fruits and vegetables, that's the time that you lose your subsidy. And, and it's very complicated. There's real, there's actually reasons for it. It's not just like terrible government policy. There's actual real reasons. So, um, but yes like you're saying in this region uh the conservation reserve program so it's the crp um, is used very heavily and so what that means is is that people can put areas of their farm that are erodible or um very heavily heavily forested into that program or actually uh, land that has been uh it's, it's really not great soil it's overused And they can put it in the CRP program and then get money to do like seeding, prairie seeding, like we're getting some money to um, restore pasture and prairie, that kind of thing. So there, there are a lot of conservation programs that are actually out there. I think there's, again, a misunderstanding that there's no support for farmers doing positive things for the environment. That's just that's not true. We actually just enrolled in a program Um, to promote butterfly habitat on the farm and will be paid to help seed that and to help have that for many, many years, actually.
1: And you can go into the county uh, uh, USDA office, right? And find out about the programs and sign up to be in certain programs that are just in your county.
0: You, You can, if you have really good people there that can help. That know those programs. That's a part of the book that I talk about um, also at length is that you really the that whatever policies that are in place, we really need human beings in offices that are have the time, that have the education, the will to help promote those programs. Because having those programs just, you know, go to farmers in Sonoma County doesn't get it everywhere in the, in the US that we really need those programs. So yes, we finally have someone at our at our offices. We've been we were through, I think, four or maybe five um, people who ran the office. And we finally have somebody who's interested, excited and knowledgeable enough to help us.
1: Well, listening between the lines, uh, you know, you're talking about bureaucracies, and sometimes, sometimes they're good, and sometimes they're not. I think all over the country, people have experiences at their DMV, if not the USDA, and some are good, and some aren't so good. I'm sure, but that yeah. brings up another point, and I want to, uh, I want to wrap up here in a few minutes. But I, but I'm just thinking that you and your husband, for family reasons, landed in Central Iowa. But I'm thinking you could almost throw a dart at the map of the United States and go land in a community, and it had some variations of the same story, but it wouldn't be the same. I mean, if you were on rangeland in New Mexico, a rural area would be different, or if you're in tropical areas of Florida, it'd be different. But I'm wondering if you've thought about that, about how there's a, there's a lot of stories. You've got an Iowa story here, but there's a, there's would you expect to see similar stories anywhere you'd you go land for a while.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I try to talk a lot in the book about the things that are a little bit universal. Universal about our story. Um, some of them being that we came to this land with a lot of privilege. We we had some family wealth. We had access to land. Um, we are part of you know the ninety eight percent of land that is owned by white landowners. Um, this is land that was taken from the Meskwaki tribe. There were, a co- there was a community right nearby, actually, that was very, a very interesting town called Buxton, that had um, brought in African American miners um, to work in the town. And they were, they had total equality with the white people that were working and living in this town as well this is the early 1900s it was like totally nowhere else in the country was this happening and there's no african american farmers in this region that i know of so i think those things are very universal across this country um those things happened everywhere I think you'd have, yes, very unique stories dealing with water issues, for example, that we don't have that would take place in other places or um, the climate change, I guess, is also something that is happening a lot everywhere. Uh, we have it, we've had it less, we have to plan for it, the same as everybody else, though. So. I would say that, you know, the story is very Iowa-centric and yet um, very similar to stories all over the country at the same time.
1: You made reference to uh, the effect of the, uh, I think it was the 80s, really. So many farmers were going bankrupt back then. And there was a huge change in the pork industry. And Iowa probably saw the most of it because that kind of pork production that took place in North Carolina uh, I think Murphy Farms found their way to Iowa. And and now what you have today is many of your neighbors, I suspect, have these big barns that they had to borrow money to put up so that they could feed the pigs for somebody else that actually owns the pigs. And that's most of how the hogs are produced today. Yes. Um, and yet I found that your your reference to that I thought it was kind of sympathetic. I mean, I'm, I'm used to, to people just writing it a, as a total negative. And, and I, was, I was surprised that, that you were kind of sympathetic to their making those decisions and how it really saved some families that they could go into this feeding for these big companies, uh, some from Brazil, some from China that are feeding pigs in the United States. Um, that must have been quite an experience for you to kind of dig into that and, and and come to that perspective. Was I fair to say that I I saw some sympathy in the way that you were evaluating it?
0: Yes. I, I feel I, I don't feel like, you know, in this in this day and age, like who needs us to be more more divisive and more, you know. I don't know negative about each other and making assumptions about why we each make decisions the decisions we have i mean i think it's it's a very it's time for us to to be really sympathetic to each other and listening to what the what the reasons are for making decisions so um you know i i talk about that in the 80s a lot of a lot of farmers chose to go that route because there was a contract behind it and they could be guaranteed what they were going to make. And even now people who are putting up hog facilities, I mean, it's growing at the field. The industry is, is growing and growing in the state. I'm not sympathetic at all to the government policies that let people put them up wherever they want, basically without any sort of public, you know, discussion about it. I'm not sympathetic about that. I'm not sympathetic about, you know, seas of manure that need to be dealt with. But I am sympathetic to the fact that people want to farm, they want to keep their land um, and be in jobs where they are outside and, you know, doing things. Um, And so that's a choice that many families make in order to keep You know, it was interesting to learn that it's really a way of keeping a next generation on the farm. So who who puts up a, a confinement facility for hogs or poultry even? It's a family that has land that already has row crops so they could put manure somewhere. And they have a next generation that wants to be on the farm, but there's not enough money being made on the farm to bring them in. So this is a way of them including them, getting them started and having some income. It's, it turns out to be kind of peanuts, but um, it, 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 I understand that. I I don't think it's helpful to just write it off because then we can't find solutions. It's just back to the beginning, what I was saying, if you don't understand that the solution might seem like, Oh, we just ban that. Well, yes, we could ban it, but there has to be ways to, for families to stay on the land. There has to be ways for people to financially afford to have a farm. And if we can't find those ways, then things like hog confinement units will continue to pop up even if it's some other kind of thing at some other kind of place it will keep happening
1: you know this whole experience that you've had you've been kind enough to share it in a book we should mention the book right now again too because i think that we've touched on much that's in the book there's so much more um so people look for the book. Where? Just yep, it's
0: called, uh, So it's Beth the Farm: The Dollars and Cents of Growing Food in America. Uh, it's put out by Island Press, which you can go to their website. But you can also go to your local bookstore and order it. You can also go to all of the the big places that you order things online, and they show up at your door. They have it too.
1: And I should point out that when you say it's dollars and cents, it's your cents spelled with an S instead of a C, yes. uh, uh-huh. which I thought that was clever. Um and that just one more thing to wrap up on, Beth, and that that is where do we go from here? I mean, you know, in some respects, it's easier for us to be in, you know, Berkeley or somewhere and just say, oh, well, the food system needs to do this, this and this and this. And we can, you know, pontificate uh, uh, at the, the local coffee shop, you know, while we're having our lattes and, and with other people that will feel the same way on the way to the farmer's market. Um, I get from your book, it's not that simple. Um, and and I'm wondering if people beyond reading their book, which they should read your book. I think people that pay any attention to the Farm to Table Talk podcast are going to like reading your reading your book. But are you any closer to saying the way forward? I mean, is there people that want to promote um, the the right attitude about agriculture, support for farmers, and so forth? Is there uh, is it becoming clear to you of of, of next steps?
0: Well, um, so one of the things that I try and talk about in the book is the the mythologies that we have around farming and so I'll just allude to that it's much longer than we have here um, to describe but um, changing those narratives. And being more realistic about farming and about agriculture would, would be a great step in the, in the right direction. And I, I outlined different ways that can be done, ways on a personal farmer level, ways in a, a working together model, um, uh, farmers on their own land. Um, but I also think that one of the keys to the puzzle is, that um, currently farmers receive, uh, it's, it's a USDA statistic as well, they receive 14 cents on the dollar for every dollar you spend in the grocery store. So you go in and you buy $10 worth of food, uh, farmers take home $1. forty of that. Um, and that is just way too low. When you think about the 85 cents of it that's going to the other parts, um, largely of which is the branding and the marketing and some CEO that's making millions and millions and millions of dollars a year to sit in their office and come up with, you know, a new kind of Oreo. Um, I think that we could reallocate that kind of money. And as consumers and as farmers, we have to take that power back. And I, I am really encouraging farmers um, and I, I love that you said that the, the story seemed empathetic to these kinds of farmers and people growing conventionally and confinement because I really, the, the dream for the book is is that those are the people who read this and start thinking about who's representing them and how we can work together to gain more of that dollar back and the power that can come from growing food in this country.
1: You know, I agree with that, and but I want to add one more complexity to it, is that we are faced with the fact, we keep saying that we're only spending 11% of our disposable income on food. Well, that's true if you're in the upper 50% of, of the population, but those the, the bottom 20% in the country are spending 50 60% for their of their disposable income for foods too. So it's a tricky balancing act, but I totally agree with you. I think that uh, something has to be done. A lot of farmers are not making what they can, um, what you'd hope they can. And uh, Beth, you've contributed a lot to this conversation. I mean, the conversation, not just for this podcast, but I think an important conversation that goes on after people read the book and get engaged and, and, And realize that it's not quite as simple as um, what what they may have thought the answer was for food and agriculture Uh, thank you for what you're doing and thank you for being on farm to table talk
0: thank you i really appreciate all of your support thanks
1: you've been listening to farm to table talk with your host roger wasson